Chapter 42 of the Story of the World A Simple History for Boys and Girls This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Read by Victor Sheremet The Story of the World A Simple History for Boys and Girls by Elizabeth O'Neill Chapter 42 Section Australasia One strange result of the American War of Independence was the founding of colonies in the great continent at the opposite side of the world from Great Britain, Australia. Before that time, men who had committed crimes in England had been practically sold to the American colonists who made them work on their plantations. After the war, this could not be done any longer, and so when the discoveries of Captain Cook were making people think of Australia, it was thought a good thing to send the convicts out there as colonists. In this way it happened that, in March 1787, nine ships set out for Australia, carrying a large number of men who had broken the laws of England. It was a continent that for hundreds of years had been called the Southern Land or Australia, where men who came to know in one way or another that such a land existed, thought it stretched to the South Pole. The Chinese knew of it in the 13th century, and several men are supposed to have discovered it three centuries later. But the first discoverers, about whom we can be sure were Dutchmen, who in the 17th century sailed along the west coast, the Torres, a Spaniard, sailed through the sea which separates Australia on the north from New Guinea, and he may have seen the country, and the water is now called Torres Strait after him. The Dutchmen sailed from an island not far from Australia, called Java, and it was Abel Tasman who, sailing from there, discovered the island of Tasmania in 1642. The first Englishman to visit Australia was William Dampier, who reached it in 1688. He went there again in 1699, and thought it a very poor country, with little growing on the land and only one kind of animal. This, from his description, is now known to have been the kangaroo. The man who found out most about Australia was Captain Cook, who sailed out to make discoveries about the star which is called Venus. In October 1769 he saw the land which is now called New Zealand, and he called the water in which the ship stopped Poverty Bay because the people who lived there would not help him in any way, and were very quick to attack him. He sailed on and came to the east coast of Australia in April 1770. He made the ship stop in a little bay, which lies very near where the large town Sydney now stands. He called the bay Botany Bay, because there were so many strange plants and flowers there, but what struck him most was the strangeness of the natives. 
When the ship sailed into the bay, a number of them were cooking their food at a fire, but they took no notice of the ship. They didn't seem to look even when the ship let down the anchor with a great noise. But when the captain tried to set foot on the shore, some of them stood up and threatened him with their spears, even when one of the natives was shot in the leg for throwing a stone, they seemed not to be afraid, and it was with great difficulty that Captain Cook and his men could land. But they did so several times, and before sailing away, they hoisted the Union Jack to show that the land in future belonged to Great Britain. Captain Cook sailed slowly along the coast towards the north, and he called it New South Wales, as he thought it looked like the coast of Wales. He sailed to Cape York, the point of Australia which is farthest north, and again he hoisted the Union Jack before sailing away to England. He was later sent out to Australia again, and this time he visited Tasmania, as well as New Zealand, and he was making discoveries in another part of the ocean when the savage natives of a small island killed him. Brave and clever as Captain Cook was, he never forgot to be kind and thoughtful about his sailors. It was other Englishmen who told the world all about the coasts of Australia, but the land within was not known for many years. Captain Flinders sailed around Australia in 1806, and in 1831 a ship named the Beagle left England with a man on board whose name will never be forgotten. Charles Darwin was sent out on this voyage to find out all he could about the rocks, plants and animals of the countries they visited and it was this voyage that began the work which has helped people to understand more about how the first man came to be born on earth, and has led them to think that man is only the highest of an immense number of animals which little by little, in one way or another, have grown more powerful and cleverer until the highest was born. But it is more important for the present to point out that Darwin in the Beagle went around Australia, New Zealand and Tasmania, examined the coasts very carefully and wrote down what was found out. The first colonists in Australia. But before this many things had happened in Australia. The first colonists consisted of 564 men and 192 women convicts, and about 200 soldiers. They landed in Botany Bay, but Captain Philip, who was the head of colony, didn't find it a good place to live in, so he moved the settlement to Port Jackson, near Sydney. They had brought with them cows, horses, sheep, pigs, goats and fowls, as well as plenty of seed to sow, and farming tools. But at first they found it very hard to make things grow, and many more convicts came, and many years passed before they found out how to till the land 
and settled down in comfort. In 1793, people who were not convicts began to go to New South Wales, and they were given land and food. Soon the town of Sydney began to grow, and by the beginning of the 19th century it had already schools, churches, a newspaper and a theatre. A few miles inland from Sydney is a range of mountains, and for a long time this prevented men from trying to find out what lay farther inland. But under Captain Macquarie, who became governor in 1809, a track was opened over the mountains, and this led to the discovery of fertile pasture land beyond. An army officer soon showed that sheep could be reared there, and settlers flocked to the new lands. Other parts of Australia were now being turned into convict settlements. Queensland to the north, Victoria to the south, and Western Australia were all colonized by convicts, and all had in consequence at some time to fight against one great peril. The way in which the first convict settlements were governed was unlike an ordinary colony. The men during the day would work in the open air, building houses, tiling the fields and watching the sheep. Then at night they would be brought back before dark to lie in a sort of barracks, guarded by soldiers through the long hot nights, until the cool morning came. Sometimes convicts who had behaved well for a time were lent to a farmer or a shepherd and then they would have more freedom. They would work very much like any farm laborer, although sometimes they were very ill-treated by the farmers who were set over them. In any case, life was very dreary and hopeless, and while it was difficult to escape from the prisons in the towns, it was almost easy to run away from a farm, especially by stealing a horse. So in time many of these men escaped. Some of them had been treated very cruelly, and they meant to have revenge. All of them were breaking the law by running away, and knowing that they would be punished if they were taken again for there were brutal things done to convicts in those days, and especially in places far from England. They didn't care how cruel they were themselves. Sometimes they would band together and then march to a lonely farmhouse where they would steal everything valuable and shoot anyone who resisted. Very often they shot people just for amusement, at times they would wait till a number of travelers were on their way to a large town. Suddenly, when the coach had reached a lonely spot, they would appear and while some of them stood outside holding loaded revolvers, others would take from the travelers everything they had. Naturally, the free settlers and those convicts who had finished their imprisonment and wished to start afresh, tried to catch those robbers, who were called bush rangers, because they lived among the bushes and trees 
which grew not far from the settlements and which had to be removed when men wanted to till the land, but it was not easy. Often the bushrangers paid men in the towns to let them know when they were to be attacked, and there were many good hiding places in the interior of the country, which it was difficult to find, and out of which it was very difficult indeed to get even one or two men if they had guns. It was much worse after 1851, when gold was first found in Australia. Men flocked out from England and great quantities of gold were taken from the mines. When this was found near small settlements it was kept until there was a very large quantity and then it was sent to the nearest large town. Men would go with it to protect it, but this didn't prevent the bush rangers waiting until the gold train had reached some suitable place when they would suddenly shoot a number of the men and force the rest to let them take the gold. Sometimes they were daring enough to march into a town and attack the bank. One very famous bush ranger was called Ned Kelly. His brother Daniel had stolen a horse in Victoria and when the policemen came to take him, Ned shot at one and wounded him. Then he had to run away. He was joined by other bad men, and though eight thousand pounds was offered to anyone who would take the men, they were not taken for two years. They were at length traced to a wooden hut in June 1880, and the police surrounded it. All but Kelly were shot, and he was taken and hanged. This was the last of the bush rangers, but it is strange to think that they could still exist when Australia had grown so active and so rich, and when people who are still young were alive. Long before the death of Ned Kelly, Australia had begun to settle down into the condition in which it is known today. At first, New South Wales included not only the whole of Australia, but also New Zealand and the islands near. But before 1840, South Australia, West Australia, Tasmania and New Zealand were cut off, and before 1860, New South Wales had become almost exactly what it is today. Queensland was the last to be treated as a colony. West Australia was the colony to which the last convicts were sent, and it was not until 1868 that transportation was stopped. Even Tasmania had for many years secured the right to be treated as a colony and not as a convict settlement. By the year 1856 New South Wales, the oldest colony, had become a large and rich settlement. In 1850, a university was opened in Sydney, and four years later, the first railway was finished and in use. The settlers now wished to choose a parliament from among themselves and to rule themselves. And in 1856, this was agreed to by the Parliament of Great Britain, 
each of the other colonies had grown in the same way. First a small settlement was formed, then by the industry of the settlers, most of them convicts, the settlement began to grow. Soon towns were made in other parts of the colony, and then the colony was treated as separate from the parent, New South Wales. The colony grew still larger and richer, more free settlers came, and at length it was thought great enough to rule itself. But Australia has not grown without its troubles. The discovery of gold increased the number of free settlers to an enormous extent, and the new colonists were bold and independent men who had respect for themselves and for little else. This made the colonies democratic, and it caused the bitter struggles between the early colonists, who now owned a great part of the land, and the more democratic, who thought that the land should be owned by as many as possible. It also did a good deal to bring nearer the struggle between those who work and those who employ which has resulted in the victory of the workers. When the colonies were all large and rich, many men began to feel that they ought to join together like the provinces of Canada, each colony making laws for things which concerned itself, but the colonies together making laws for other things. For some years men talked about the new idea, but some people felt so strongly against it that it could not be brought to pass. At length, in 1900, it was agreed to and on 1st January 1901, the Commonwealth of Australia commenced to exist. It has passed some wise laws, one of them being that every man is bound to be trained as a soldier so that if necessary he will be able to fight for his country. The Commonwealth of Australia is very loyal. Its soldiers fought side by side with the British at Khartoum and in South Africa, and it has recently helped in providing ships for the fleet. New Zealand On his last voyage Captain Cook hoisted the Union Jack in New Zealand, but Great Britain didn't take the country, and explorers belonging to other nations visited the islands. Then in 1814 came Samuel Marsden and a number of English missionaries, and although they taught Christianity to the natives, and in this way persuaded the different tribes to remain at peace with each other, still Great Britain would not look on New Zealand as an English colony. It was not until January 1840 when the British government came to know that France intended to colonize the islands, that an officer of the British Navy was told to go to New Zealand and take possession of them. The French settlers arrived a few months later, but as the land now belonged to Great Britain, they became British subjects. The Maoris, as the natives are called, are not like the natives of Australia. Tall and strongly built, they have a brown complexion and tattoo their bodies in strange patterns.
but they are very intelligent. And in the early years of the first colonists there were many struggles with them. Their courage was extraordinary, and as they had good guns, it took years of fighting to make them understand that the white men had come to the islands to stay, and that they meant to be the rulers. Most of the fighting went on in the North Island. The Maori's favorite way of fighting was to build a stockade, a sort of very strong fence behind which they dug pits for the men to shoot from. Sometimes great numbers of white men would be killed before the Maoris could be driven from the stockade. Some of them hated Christianity as well as hating the foreigners, and so they fought with great fairness. But others, some of them brave chiefs, fought for the English. Although the first settlers had arrived in New Zealand in 1814, it was not until 1870 that the Maoris were finally conquered. But meanwhile, many changes had taken place. Nine separate colonies had been founded in New Zealand and each had its own way of government, and they had little to do with one another. The colony was allowed to govern itself in 1852. But for years there were struggles between the New Zealand government and the councils which ruled the nine separate states. At length, in 1876 the states were abolished and New Zealand has since been a single colony. It has grown steadily. The land is very good for rearing sheep and so much of it has been divided up into strips for sheep farming. Gold was discovered in 1853, and this brought to the colony great numbers of men who wanted to get rich quickly. Railways and telegraphs soon began to appear. Good roads were made, and men were encouraged to leave England and settle in New Zealand. Like the Australians, the men who live in New Zealand are very loyal to Great Britain, and men they were very eager to go out to South Africa to help the British army in the war. Like the Australians too, they have added to the ships of the navy. The people of New Zealand like the Maoris now, and they get on very well together. The population has grown steadily, and New Zealand is now a rich, prosperous country well governed and in peace. End of chapter 42